I think this is the prayer of someone who trusts God. Far more than I do. But I can work on this, I hope. Uh, more than ever I find myself in the hands of God. This is what I have wanted all my life from my youth, but now there is a difference. The initiative is entirely with God. It is indeed a profound spiritual experience to know and feel myself so totally in God's hands. There's a... Um, he lived in Japan a long time and prayed Japanese. This is a picture of him. I'll pa you can just pass that around, but you can see he's in Japanese position. Um, and I have some extra copies of the card, and I'll put those in the back. This is just, you might want to take a look at him. I, um, let me just say one thing, too, about spiritual stuff. Something I find very helpful in my own process. Reading biographies is real helpful reading the lives of other women and men who have struggled with this stuff before is real helpful because otherwise we think we're the only ones it's the self-obsession so reading the biographies of other folks is wonderful and there is a uh, one i would recommend to any alanon because um, i mean the trusting god is part of the equation it's part of the paradox the other half is and you have a lot of work to do we have lots of footwork to do and trust God completely and do all the footwork and trust God completely. Well, isn't that contrary? No, it's just paradox. One of the great American figures of all time is Susan B. Anthony. And there is a uh, biography of her by a woman named Sheehy. And the book is called Failure is Impossible, The Life of Susan B. Anthony. And she fought her whole life for women getting the vote. Like over 50 years of speeches, women getting the vote. And she died before women got the vote. And towards the end, I mean, she would meet with presidents of the United States and they would say, well, Miss Susan, or Aunt Susan, that's what they called her, we're just not ready yet for women to take the vote, you know. Um, and she would just pin them against the wall, you know. She was controversial. She was tough. She fought. She turned things over a lot. And as she was a very, very frail old lady, and she always wore a red shawl, someone said uh, uh, she was giving a speech in St. Louis or some awful place, and they said, well, what are you going to talk about tonight, Aunt Susan? And she said, I'm going to give one more shriek for freedom, <laughs> just like I've done every night for the last 25 years. One more shriek for freedom. And in, when she's in her 80s, they say, you know, women still aren't voting. And she said, failure is impossible. You know? One of the great ones, I think. Oh, anyway, um, the, I, I need to read her story when I get discouraged because I've had a bad morning. <laughs> you, know? you know, gee, I've had a bad morning. I don't know if I can stand it. I get discouraged so easily. Another reason to go to meetings. It's a place where I can hear other people talk about walking through hard times. Because otherwise, what I hear is if you work the program right, you never have bad days. And you'll hear, I mean, there are people that believe that, and I just stare at them as if they are Martians. Um, or I, you know, I figure, well, good for you. That's not my experience. Uh, my experience is the program gets us through the bad days. But I need to know about hope. 
and I need to know about women and men who have fought against overwhelming odds, just like we do, fighting against overwhelming odds. The gorilla is merciless. Merciless. Um, we talk a lot about self-knowledge and God's will here in these funny rooms. Let me say a couple things about self-knowledge and God's will. When I began recovery, I came to and realized, much to my own discomfort, that I knew very little about me. Part of that was during my drinking-drugging time, I was pretty sedated. So that was one level. I mean, I was just asleep. What did I know? But in my untreated pre-Alanon place, I didn't know what I wanted because I only knew what you wanted. I mean, some of us are, we're finely tuned that way, and we're service-oriented people, a lot of us. And I am highly intuitive, and I can pick up what you need before you do on occasion. Nurses have this skill. Uh, stories told, you know. She's from a crazy alcoholic family and goes into nursing and has skills way beyond the technical skills. And one of the skills that some of us have from truly crazy families is we are able to sense when something is going to go wrong before the instruments pick it up. We know there's just something. So the nurse, you know, she works in the intensive care unit. Um, she just gets this feeling, couldn't explain it, might not even be aware she feels it, but she's just drawn to this bed, and all of a sudden all the bells and whistles go off. And she's there, and boom, she saves the life. You do that a couple of times, and other people on the staff come up to you and say, how do you do that? How do I do what? Well, we had to learn what the temperature, what the weather would be like at home by the way the key went in the lock. Our intuition is highly highly trained. This is a good thing, and it makes us interesting people to be with. Do not regret for one second that we can pick up craziness quickly. Uh, now, what we do with that, you know, is a good question. Like my, one of my friends said she could always find the man who would beat her, you know. She, uh, she had that... Um, she found after a while in Al-Anon she didn't have to drag him home. That was a great relief, but she could spot him, you know. Um, Self-knowledge. I need to know, not just what you're thinking and wanting, but I need to know what I'm thinking and wanting, and I, that, that takes some time to start putting the eyes on me. is a very uncomfortable process. And I need to find some things out for me. I need to find what works and what doesn't work. And this is an old Jesuit trick I'd like to share with you. Um, we start putting these reflections and thoughts together 
in the mid-1500s, and many of them are not original, but it is part of our spiritual past. We call this discernment, D-I-S-C-E-R-N-M-E-N-T, discernment. And we call this um, self-knowledge. What works, what doesn't work. We're very practical, just like the program. Pay attention to the whole process if you're going to do something. You're going to do something new, you're going to do something old, you're going to do some behavior, you're going to meet with somebody, you're going to try something. Notice how you're feeling at the beginning. In fact, write that down. You have to have access to your feelings to know this. Uh, I feel so good, I feel so happy, this feels really wonderful, I'm sure it's going to work. Notice that. Midway through, how are you feeling? Let's go. Well, it's, it's working. Oh, we're really, really happy. It's working. It's fine. After it's over, what do you feel? Sad, unhappy, used, beaten up. Pay attention. Some people learn very quickly. I learn very slowly. But one of the things I've learned is that some of my behaviors lead me to a place of contentment and peace and self-respect. Some of my behaviors lead me to a place where I'm desolate, I'm agitated, I'm angry, I feel awful. I want to choose some of those behaviors and I want to avoid others of those behaviors. This is a real important part of growing up, spiritually. Ignatius Loyola's uh, experience with it, it, it was this, and it's very simple, but I, the, the image is clear. He was uh, a Spanish, petty Spanish nobleman, you know, like all Irish are descendants of the kings of Ireland. Um, and uh, he was uh, full of pride and arrogance and rage, and he always knew what was right for others. Um, he did warfare, he liked that kind of thing, he liked court life. He liked chasing the ladies. He was a real ladies' man. Uh, he got wounded in the battle, and he got his leg broken, and they set the leg wrong. And you've seen paintings. These were the days, this is mid-1500s, fancy men wore uh, tights. You know, these are heterosexuals. They would wear tights and stand around in the court, and they had like, cod pieces, you know, like falsies to show how masculine they were. And they would stand around posing like peacocks. Uh, and then, of course, chase ladies and write fabulous poems to them. Um, the way his leg healed was wrong, and it healed crooked, and there was bone sticking out, and the tights looked bad, and he figured uh, he's never going to get laid again. So he had surgeons saw the bone to fit the pants. Perfectly normal behavior for a sex addict, huh? Um, he gets wounded again, and he, this, he's, he's, a, he's, a, he's a real leader in all kinds of ways, but clearly what we would technically call a man of the world. Uh, power is important to him, prestige, romance, this is, this is the world, you know, the world that appears on American daytime TV. This was his world. The second time he got badly wounded, he was laid up for a long period of time. And he was a reader also, and he, had, he wanted to read romance novels. Uh, to kind of keep that old flame alive. They didn't have daytime TV in those times. And he would read these romances all the time, and he, they would always start fun. And what he noticed was at the end of his reading of these novels, he always felt 
desolate and sad. Well, do you have any other books in the house? Well, we have The Lives of the Saints. Oh, yeah. Well, I need to read. And so he would read The Lives of a Francis of Assisi. Heroes, biographies, Francis of Assisi, uh, a Dominic, uh, some of these great figures who led lives of service. And he frequently didn't like the way it started. Didn't like it. Oh, I'll read it. But at the end, he felt better. He didn't feel slimy. He didn't feel like he needed to take a shower. He felt uplifted. This was the beginning of his understanding of self-understanding. What builds my insides to the insides of a human being responding to God's grace? What demeans me? What makes me humiliated in the bad sense? What makes me feel worthless? I want to choose one and avoid the other. This, by the way, again, is why fourth step is so important. We take a look at our, be our behavior. Where do I end up feeling worthless? Where do I end up feeling valuable and cherished? And these are questions that we get to ask in our recovery. And we can simply say some things we never have to do again, ever. Uh, I used to love rescuing people who didn't want to be rescued. And then, of course, I, it would feel great at the beginning, and I would be totally nuts at the end of the day or the evening or the week or the month. Angry at them. I don't do that for the most part anymore when I'm in my right mind. There are other things, sometimes I have to draw lines, you know, very, I can't do this. And it feels awful at the beginning, but at the end, I know it was the right choice. We start to make decisions about how our behavior goes. Frequently, rescuing people we love starts feeling sweet and we end up feeling awful. Notice that. We're drawing a line, setting a boundary, not enabling, feels awful at the beginning, but at the end, we know that this was a better choice. Um, one other, or two other points, and then we can do lunch. Or at least mosey into that area. A note on spirituality. There's all kinds of ways that people lead spiritual lives. Even in the program. There's all kinds of ways people lead spiritual lives. As you work the program, you have to find out what works for you and what doesn't work for you. I mean, it is, it, it's a very flexible thing, but we need to find out what works for each one of us. And when we talk to each other, we get to share our own experience, strength, and hope. Instead of telling people what they should and shouldn't be doing, which is one of my gifts, uh, I find when I'm in my right mind, I can share my experience, strength, and hope with them. And then that shows them the respect of giving them the chance of making some choices. For a while, I, this one fellow, he wanted me to give him advice. And it's like the first drink, you know, you just can't give advice once. Um, so I would give him advice, and, and then he wouldn't do it. 
and then he'd be angry at me for trying to run his life. So um, it took me three or four or five times to figure that out. And then uh, now I, I don't do that. I just I approach it very differently. And he's right. I mean, I, I can't do that. I get to maybe show him some of his options. But I don't tell him what to do, even though it would be easier for me if I did. Because I'd feel in charge, which is one of my favorite feelings. Uh, well, I'm in charge of so many people I sponsor. Um, it's just not true. I rather, my current attitude is I'm amazed at anybody who calls. You know, really, are you okay? Oof. And you called, good news. Um, I, it is a daily gift. Recovery in any form is a daily gift. Rather than being total loons. But there are lots of spiritualities. Within... Um, my denomination, which is a very large and old one, there are lots of ways that people see things that are very different. Now, for those of you who are not Catholic, just take my word for this. And for those of you who are, reflect a little bit on your experience. There are whole different spiritualities within the Catholic Church. Uh, Franciscans are totally different from Dominicans, are totally different from Carmelites, are totally different from Benedictines, are totally different from Jesuits. Um, you'll find, like, some of the spiritualities, like the Benedictines, are very much attuned to the desert. That's where they thrive, the desert. The Franciscans are very rural farms, back countries. You know, away from the cities. The Jesuits, and this is a Jesuit retreat house, uh, the Jesuits are people of the cities. It's where we live. It's how we think. It's how we put things together. Ignatius of Loyola always loved the cities, not the rural areas. They bored him to tears. There are different places. And as you begin your own recovery, you'll find out that some places feel like home and others don't. Some people hate cities. Then leave. Some people love the country. Go there. You know? Desert, feed you. Please go. You know? If not to live, at least to visit. If the redwoods are the place where you connect, go. I was talking to someone a while ago. I, just a footnote. Many of us, again, we know things, but we don't act on them. This person loved the Redwoods and just felt so good at the Redwoods and called me and was having a pretty bad time. And I remembered that Redwood conversation, and I said, which I usually don't. Um, and I said, uh, how long since you've been to the Redwoods? And he said, eight or ten years. See, he knew, but he needed to act. He needed, I mean, there was nothing I could say other than, I think it's a good idea. <laughs> you know, when I go to the Redwoods, I'm glad. Um, uh, go spend time there. This is part of self-information. It's part of self-discovery. So I know in recovery, I know some real important things about me. For my idea of a good vacation, it's not to go to the seashore. <laughs> no, 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 no. And it's not, oh, I think I'll go to a small town. My idea of a great vacation is a city with Jewish delicatessens and foreign movies. You know? <laughs> and I feel sensational at the end of something like that. Uh, 
I had other friends when I was much younger. We were told what to do much more frequently. The control was much higher. And the people who were in charge liked going to out-of-the-way places and doing nothing, you know. Um, that's how I would see it. Oh, we can go river rafting. I said, right. Um, you know, I don't have to do that <laughs> to be happy. Um, you got to do what makes you happy, which means you have to try lots of things. And this is my, my last pitch for the morning. Part of recovery, a large part of recovery is trial and error. Seeing things, sampling things, opening doors, closing doors. It's all about change. And it's all about taking risks. It really is. For some of you who are on your first retreat, this is a big risk. And it's a big deal. And I just want to congratulate you for trying anything new. Hopefully it's not an awful experience, you know. Um, and I find that a lot of times I don't know if I like something for a while. I've got to see what it feels like. In fact, I might have to do it two or three or four or five times before I know if I like it or not. This is true for movies. I'll see a movie and at the end of the movie I don't know if I liked it. I feel so stupid in those circumstances. Or I'll remember I saw the movie but I can't remember a thing about it. Or I'm two-thirds of the way through a book before I realized I've read it before. <laughs> I really feel stupid. So what I, uh, what I have to remember is this is a perfectly valid way of learning. Instead of saying, oh, I should be quicker on the draw. Uh, also, you, you can, don't have to buy new books. <laughs> you can just reread things and uh, be totally content. But it's the risk-taking and it's the allowing ourselves to feel ignorant and allowing ourselves to feel imperfect and allowing ourselves to be vulnerable. And if we can do that, God's grace, I think, really flows in our lives. We do a lot of conversation about us seeking God. God could and would if God were sought. Seeking God, where do I find God? I've lost connection with God. This becomes big questions for a lot of us in recovery. Well, yes, yes, yes. But one of my understandings is not just that we seek God, but God seeks us. God seeks us. How on earth did you get to your first meeting? Some of us were dragged. Some of us were pushed. Some of us brought a friend. <laughs> a friend left, we stayed. Very odd. God seeks us. And so... One of the rabbis, when he talks about God at work, will say, uh, uh, God at work is like a woman who lost a coin, searches the whole house for the coin, and when she finds the coin, is thrilled. Um, God is like uh, a shepherd who loses one sheep and uh, looks all over the place till he finds the sheep and then is really happy. It's the notion of God seeking us and then responding with joy that is the notion I'd like to leave you with tonight, or this afternoon. And sometimes what we can best do in our spiritual lives is run away from God less quickly. Slow down and let God reach you. Do less. Let God find you. I, I told that story of you know the shepherd finding the lost sheep and bringing him home and everyone's glad. And um, one of my friends who has a little dark side to him says, what do you think they had for dinner that night? 
I'm sure they were vegetarians. <laughs> Lamb. So, this is along the line of, you know, the notion of when the lion lies down with the lamb, the lamb won't get much sleep. Um, but anyway, let's break. And for this afternoon, you know, after lunch, sleeping is a very spiritual exercise. Sleep if you can. Go for a walk if you can. Do some writing if you can. Do some, um, you know, conversation with people when you can. It is just grand. And... Um, Enjoy the afternoon. This is a Saturday, and to start off a little bit um, talking this afternoon, I want to address a few comments to those of us who are type A personalities and uh, overachievers and very responsible, serious types who had to run the family because no one else was. Um, and the notion I'd like to introduce, and I'm not going to tell you what to do about it, but it's a real ancient one, and I've just started doing some thinking about this myself as I nudge 50 years old. Um, it's the notion of Sabbath day. The notion of Sabbath day. And I think it does need to get talked about because in our culture we don't have one. We're very busy people all the time. And if you're not busy, there's something terribly wrong with you. The notion of Sabbath. It's interesting, uh, one of the Ten Commandments, uh, which is as valid as any of the others, you know, it's as important as any of the other of the commandments, is uh, to keep holy the Sabbath. And that what happens with, with church folk is we'll break out into fistfights over which is the Sabbath day. Whatever the Sabbath day is, is irrelevant. But the observance of Sabbath is a spiritual exercise. And that's what I want to talk about a little bit this afternoon. The children of Abraham all have a real strong sense of Sabbath. For Muslims, it's Friday. For Jews, it's Saturday. For Christians, it's Sunday. But this sense of Sabbath day, and if you're a little nuts, you get it all wrong. And you see it as a day to punish people for working. Uh, there are going to be, uh, in Cromwell's England, all kinds of things get outlawed. And if you violated them, they'd fine you, you know, thus making you really look forward to Sabbath day. Um, I was reading a book by an American rabbi named Heschel. And uh, Rabbi Heschel, H-E-S-C-H-E-L, is one of the great minds of modern-day Judaism. And if you ever want to read something written by a thoughtful, prayerful man, anything by Rabbi Heschel is well worth study. And he has written a series of reflections on <coughs> Sabbath. So I'm kind of fussing with that book, which means I read it and then put it down, and then read it, then put it down, then lose it and then find it, and then read it for four days, and then put it down. That's how I frequently read books. I know I should be more disciplined, but it's not going to happen. So relax. Okay. Um, Heschel says, his first observation, most spiritual and religious traditions have sacred places. Uh, Mecca, you know, go to Mecca, make pilgrimage. Jerusalem. Go to the Wailing Wall, the River Ganges, you go there. Um, 
people make pilgrimage to sacred places. In fact, you'll even find some people in Alcoholics Anonymous who will make pilgrimages to Dr. Bob's house, you know. <gasps> we were in Akron. Look, I have a mail from Dr. Bob's house. So <laughs> you're talking, when you talk like that, you're talking to someone who's a member of a religion who took that kind of stuff real seriously and used it as a major fundraising thing for centuries, you know. Relics, selling relics. Um, they had a whole series of, they had, it was like Barnum and Bailey sometimes. They would have relics and they'd move them around from town to town and people would come to see the relics. And in the Middle Ages, pre-Reformation, there were relics like uh, uh, nails from the True Cross, of course, were always being able to be shown. Um, a feather from the Holy Spirit, that was one of them. <laughs> the last breath of St. Joseph, that was one of them. <laughs> How'd they get that? They killed him, you know. Bag over his head. Um, another regular one was milk from the breast of the Blessed Virgin. Yeah. People would just line up to see this stuff, you know. So I always get a little anxious when people start talking about relics from Akron. Um, one of my favorite relics from the Middle Ages, though, was the head of St. John the Baptist as a child. <laughs> you think I'm making that up? I'm not. There actually was. You could go and see his head as a child. One born every minute, you know. That's always. But Sabbath. Get back to the Sabbath notion. Um, so there are holy places. Rabbi Heschel said, Judaism has a holy time, a holy, a t not just a place that is sacred, but a time that is sacred. And when Sabbath begins, there's a special relationship that happens between God and every observant Jew. And so then, when does sundown, when does sun up, you know, when does it start? Um, Judaism has its craziness too. Does Sabbath begin at sundown in Jerusalem, or does Sabbath begin sundown in Oakland? You know, they'll break out in fistfights. Um, and in the New York Times on Sabbath on Friday evening, they will list when is sundown today. You see, is it 5.53? That's when the candles are. I mean, people get into this, you know, because on Sabbath, you are to do no servile work. Well, what's behind that? See, I always like asking questions like, what's behind that? Because otherwise you get into fistfights over what's work, what's not work, you know. And instead of observing a Sabbath day, you start throwing rocks, you know, as soon as you legally can, of course. Um, <laughs> is throwing rock work or is throwing ra rock recreation? You can get into those discussions. Um, Sabbath is the day when all human labor is to cease. And God can be God. This is the thinking. And God can be God. We let God reign supreme on Sabbath day. And then the Jewish community would reflect on Sabbath. Why are we taking a day off? Well, sec in purely secular terms, I mean, this is just in terms of, of spirit and psychology and human understanding, a day off is a real good idea. I mean, it's a real good idea for those of us who are crazy people, who are busy all the time. In fact, if you look at the way the land works and crops and rotation, part of ecology is to let the land lie fallow every so often. Just let nothing grow there but weeds. I mean, just leave the land alone. 
Well, then we do a lot of vitamins and stuff to the land, and things get a little crazy, you know. But to le- Sabbath is kind of the fallow day, you see. Sabbath is the day to let body and heart rest, sleep late, uh, don't do much, um, low expectations, process things. Don't be real busy on the Sabbath. There were two kinds of thoughts about this. One, God and Moses are having one of their conversations. They had several. And in the book of Exodus, oh, if I can find this quickly, I'll be real impressed. Ah, Exodus 20. Uh, I usually, when I need to find something in Scripture, I have to ask one of my Baptist friends, because they know. They know things. (laughs) Always have Baptist friends. They know things. Um... Like, where in the Bible does it say? Oh, thank you. Um, Chapter 20 of Exodus, God gives the Ten Commandments. And this is God as they understand God, right? And God is speaking. Um, And and God identifies God. You know, I, the one who am talking to you, who am I? I, the Lord, am your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, that place of slavery. That's the introduction. You shall have no other gods beside me. Okay, so boom. Who am I? Uh, how do they understand the higher power? Through their experience. And like we understand our higher power through our experience. And their experience is we were trapped in slavery. Now we're free. We didn't do it. Who did? A power greater than ourselves. And now we're going to get into some kind of relationship with this power. I, the Lord, am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, that place of slavery. Never forget that. Then, lots of things get said, and this commandment, uh, this is chapter 20, verse 8. Remember to keep holy the Sabbath day. Six days you may labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is the Sabbath of the Lord your God. No work may be done then, either by you or your son or your daughter, or your male or female slave, or your beast, or by the alien who lives with you. Um, It is to be a day off for everybody. And then they give a reason. In six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea, and all that is in them. But on the seventh day he rested. That is why the Lord has blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. See, so by taking the Sabbath day off, in a way you're imitating God. God rested, we rest. God rested, we rest. Well, life happens. And this whole thing gets repeated again in the book of Deuteronomy, uh, which is one of my favorite names. And I wish more children were named Deuteronomy. (laughs) There are too many Marys and Franks. You know, how about some little Deuteronomies? (laughs) In the book of Deuteronomy, which is kind of uh, viewed by many for centuries as the last will and testament of Moses, Moses takes all of Exodus and rewrites it with a bit of a different spin. And um, Ten Commandments are reintroduced in this chapter, which is chapter 5 of Deuteronomy. And this is how the Ten Commandments begin. I, the Lord, am your God, 
who brought you out of the land, the land of Egypt, that place of slavery. Again, the exact same introduction, that's who I am. Then we skip down to uh, this little reflection on the Sabbath day. Take care to keep holy the Sabbath day as the Lord your God commanded you. Six days you may labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is the Sabbath of the Lord your God. No work may be done then. See, so far it's pretty familiar, right? It just parallels the last translation. No work may be done then, whether by you or your son or daughter or your male or female slave or your ox or your ass or any of your beasts or the alien who lives with you, period. Your male and female slave should rest as you do. Notice that gets added. They've already mentioned slaves, but then they repeat slaves. What could be going on? Well, clearly slaves were being forced to work on Sabbath. So like any law, you deal with the abuse. Even they get the day off. And then, interesting reflection. Instead of saying, because God worked for six days and took the seventh day off, a new reason is given for the observance of the Sabbath and the spin that your male and female slave get the day off to. For remember that you too were once slaves in Egypt, and the Lord your God brought you from there with his strong hand and outstretched, outstretched arm. That is why the Lord your God has commanded you to observe the Sabbath day as a celebration of your passing from slavery to freedom. Now, most of us, especially in the United States, which is crazy, workaholic, busy, crazy, stay active, most of us have to very seriously take a look at Sabbath in our lives for our own emotional and spiritual good. Taking time off. Now, that might not be once a week. It might be every 10 days or every two weeks or once a month. But something has to happen so that we can let ourselves lie fallow. Now, on your day off, on your Sabbath, if that's the day that you do your laundry and make all your phone calls and do all the yard work and paint the house, that's not Sabbath. See, that's just busy. Sabbath means stop all unnecessary work. And in the rabbinical tradition, there is a long discussion on what's work, what's not work. It takes chapters and chapters, and those big discussions on this, you know. But I need to know what my day off is like. I find it interesting, for those of us in ministry, you know, in, in the Christian tradition, since Constantine, Sunday has been the Sabbath day, and what if you're pastor of a parish, and on Sunday you say Mass six times and give six sermons and deal with 4,000 people? It's not a day off for the pastor. And it's not Sabbath. It might be for the other people but not for him. Where do you go? What do you do to let your body and soul rest? And for those of us in recovery, these become real important questions. And I really do think, because again, our culture is so crazy. I, one person calls me regularly, and, and the big conversation is work stuff, boss stuff. You know, um, you aren't being paid anymore, but you are expected to work longer hours. And if you complain, there are six people ready to take your place. I mean, this is indentured servitude. 
And it's being done because in our culture, the only thing we value is the profit line. And I don't care what other family values they give you. The fact is, profit line is the way things run. You know, which is, which makes us all sick. So I need to find ways of observing Sabbath in my life. And I might start that by looking at the way other people observe Sabbath in their lives. And then find some time for this. And again, whether it's weekly or every two weeks or once a month or ever, or the regular retreat, you know, where once a year or several times a year you come somewhere just to be fallow as a spiritual exercise. What are you doing for your spiritual life? Very little today. You know, I'm not watching TV, I'm not working out, I'm not doing this, I'm not doing that. I'm just kind of not doing much today for my spiritual health. This is why earlier, as I said, if you're able to take a nap, taking a nap is like taking a little Sabbath. Civilized countries respect siestas very, very much. Uh, all the Mediterranean goes to bed, you know, <laughs> uh, twice a day. Uh, it's a real good idea. Uh, most Latin countries do. Most countries with incredible heat take the heat of the day off. We're nuts. And we think you're supposed to keep going all the time because we think people should act like machines. And machines don't take time off. And if you are not as efficient as a machine, you're worthless to us. Um, that goes back to the Paul Bunyan story. You know, Paul Bunyan was not enough. The machine beat him, therefore Paul Bunyan has no value. This is terrifying. No wonder most of us are depressed and crazy. Sabbath helps me respect spiritually my gifts and your gifts and it's time off. And whether I do it to rejoice in the fact that once I was a slave and now I'm free or to talk about uh, God's creation and now at rest, it's irrelevant. The fact is I need the time. I need a sacred time. And as part of it in the Al-Anon program, see, the reason I, I especially uh, voice this to those of us in Al-Anon is because many of us are convinced that if we don't concentrate all the time on the problem, it'll blow up. Do you ever find it, you're afraid to go to sleep at night because what will everybody do if you're unconscious? <laughs> well, you, some of us are convinced that our worry is like glue. And our worrying holds the family together. See? If I wasn't worrying, they'd fly off the map. Or we think that uh, if we're involved in a relationship with our children or, you know, partners, or we've got to worry about them all the time. I'm so worried about you. We think that's being close. Yeah. Or we're very intimate. I worry constantly about him. Um, we don't see that as crazy. Sabbath is turning it over. Taking a nap is turning it over. Going to sleep at night is turning it over. You might need, if you are truly crazy, you might need to say something like this. Oh God, now for the next few hours I'm going to be asleep. Keep an eye on everything. I'll be back. 
I've done that. I've done that because I was so worried, you know. And there is kind of a nice addictive quality to worry. Some of us don't have to do cocaine. We do worry, you know. And it's just as refreshing. Um, <sighs> as, I'm, as I'm getting older, I find out I just don't have the emotional oomph for worry. It wears me out too fast. Sabbath is a real important idea. And in my thinking right now, I'm tying Sabbath in with step three. Okay. Oh, God, go to work. I won't even give you advice today. And then I have to be serious about what Sabbath is for me. Because I think it's different for different people. What's work, what's pleasure. If you're a gardener, I mean that you really are a professional gardener, uh, you don't want to garden on Sabbath day. I'm not a professional gardener, so I can garden. Okay? If you're a lifeguard, there's a real good chance that you won't go swimming on Sabbath day. But if you're not a lifeguard, you can go swimming. <laughs> it's refreshing. If you're a mom or a professional cook, there's a real good chance that you don't want to cook on Sabbath day. But if you're not a mom or not a professional cook, it might be fun. If you're a movie critic, you don't want to go to movies on Sabbath day. If you're not a professional critic, you can go. We've got to find out what refreshes us, what helps us lie fallow. Uh, I usually take Mondays as my Sabbath day. I'm not always good at this, but on my Sabbath day, I usually don't answer the phone and don't return phone calls because that's what I do all week long. <sighs> Sleep late, go for a walk. Earlier in this weekend, I mentioned self-acceptance as the key. I don't think we can willpower self-acceptance. I'm going to force myself to self to accept myself. It doesn't work that way. We can ask for God's help for self-acceptance. Because I think if we can accept ourselves, it's kind of miraculous. One of the stories that one of the rabbis talks about in here... And like most of us are so unhappy with how we've turned out. You know, we should be so much better. Uh, let me see if I really had this chosen earlier, and then I put it down. And Owen and Gary are taping me, and they hate it when I wander around looking for something like this, and I should be more organized, and they'll start criticizing and saying awful things. <laughs> ah! This is in Matthew's uh, Gospel, and it's a little parable, and it's um, uh, chapter, looks like 13, and around verse 24. Jesus proposed another parable to them. The kingdom of heaven, the presence of God, um, the spirit in our midst. Okay, that's kind of all what it's talking about. The kingdom of heaven. The kingdom of heaven is likened to a man who sowed good seed in his field. While everyone was asleep, his enemy came and sowed weeds all through the wheat and then went off. When the crop grew and bore fruit, the weeds appeared as well. The slaves of the householder came to him and said, Master, did you not sow good seed in your field? Where have all the weeds come from? He answered, an enemy has done this. Um, 
His slaves said to him, do you want us to go and pull the weeds up? He replied, no, if you pull up the weeds, you might uproot the wheat along with them. Let them grow together until harvest. Then at harvest time, I will say to the harvesters, first collect the weeds and tie them in bundles for burning, but gather the wheat into my barn. Okay. Now, parable is a story that has a point. And it's real easy on stories like this to get really crazy. Oh, this is a parable about hell. How? Well, burning. It says burning. No, you're nuts. Um, but if your major obsession is hell, you're going to find it here. Here's a little rule of thumb in scripture. Whatever craziness is going on in your head, you will find in those pages. Trust me. <laughs> People have for years, uh, and they do, and they have TV shows. Um, or, it's about slavery. It says slave. It's slavery. That's not what it's about. Well, what's it about? Uh, who, who's the weed? All right, all right, am I wheat or am I weeds? Am I wheat or am I weeds? We are the field. Each one of us is the field. And in each one of us is wheat and weeds. So relax already. <laughs> well, what about the last day? God will sort it out. This is God's job. You know, when we hear some of us talking about the defects of character, and again, none of us have any, but we sponsor people who do. <laughs> You'll hear some of us say, oh, you know, I have my ego so big. Bad ego, bad ego. You know, um, relax. Just relax. You know, um, a lot of us have problems with ego. Yeah, a lot of us have problems with self-obsession. A lot of us have problems with anger. Welcome to the group. We are the fields, and in the fields we have wheat and weeds all mixed up. And the level of self-acceptance is to be able to say that out loud without saying bad field. No, interesting field. And I know this as a gardener, as an amateur gardener, but a gardener, um, a lot of times things that I find to be really pretty are weeds. <laughs> um, I have a professional gardener uh, named Judy H., and she comes over and gives me advice occasionally, and she'll say, oh, those things are awful. I, say, I really like them. Oh, she said, well, I yank them out, and I said, I plant them. So we have different impressions, you know, wheat and weeds. And we turn all this over to the care of the higher power. Who will sort it through when it's time? Who will sort it through when it's time? Um, one other parable. I just think this one is interesting. Um, he proposed another parable to them. And this is for those of us who get discouraged. The kingdom of heaven, the presence of God, the higher power is stuff, is like mustard seed that a person took and sowed in a field. It is the smallest of all the seeds. Yet when full grown, it is the largest of plants. It becomes a large bush, and the birds of the sky come and dwell in its branches. Okay, mustard seed. Mustard seed is a real nice image for recovery, I think, for grace, for, for healing. For the reason, it does start really small, and it grows. Don't be discouraged if all you see is new growth. New growth is tender and it's small. Don't be discouraged 
if you see a lot of new growth, or just seed. It is valuable stuff. Now, one of the commentators I was reading said that what he finds interesting about this little little thing here in Matthew is that Jesus talking about the mustard seed starts very small, becomes the largest of all bushes or largest of all trees in one translation. He said, clearly this is not a farmer's kid. <laughs> because it's not true. The mustard seed is not the smallest of all seeds, and it doesn't become the biggest of all trees. But if you don't know much about farms, it sounds good. This is someone who spent a little too much time in the carpenter shop. <laughs> or in the yeshiva, you know, I mean, learn, trying to learn stuff. Uh, so he knows the, the story is a good one, it's just not, a, you know, it's not accurate, but it's a good one. The point is wonderful, but there are bigger bushes than mustard seeds, and we'll tell them that later. Um, <laughs> And another real simple parable, a way of understanding how does God work. You know, I get self-acceptance. How does God work in our lives? They'll talk about the field, and we are the field. Mustard seed starts real, real small. The other one is yeast. The kingdom of heaven is like yeast that a woman took and mixed with three measures of wheat flour until the whole batch was leavened. Now, that's accurate. He probably saw his mom do that. See, so that's, I mean, it's three measures of wheat, one of those, boom. Yeast is another great image, and most of us haven't baked, but you might want to try it sometime just for the raw, sensual experience of it. Um, yeast, given the right temperature, and mixed with dough, under the right circumstances, transforms the whole loaf. You don't have to sit next to it saying, come on, yeast. Come on, yeast. Or, I've got to think about the yeast. I've got to think. I have to worry about the yeast. Is it working? I don't know if it's working. Let me work about this. Yeast just works. And it kind of blows itself up, and then you get to punch it and work it. It's a great thing to do if you have a little difficulty with anger. May I suggest baking bread and don't use the machine. Do it the way Grandma used to do it. Like, did you ever wonder... See, when the family gets together, why does Grandma bake so much bread? <laughs> Grandma, we don't need any more. Yes, we do. You know? It was a way of discharging lots of this stuff that happens when the family... And Grandpa chopped wood. You know? Well, I don't know, he's chopping wood again. <laughs> he and Grandma were talking, and he left, and she's baking bread, and he's chopping wood. <laughs> what a happy family. <laughs> they had outlets. They had outlets. Um, now, Rumi, who is, I think, breathtaking as a poet, one of the images, he likes the bread image. The bread image is a real rich one that a lot of us use. Uh, bread is a real staple for life. Um, and the basic food that lots of people eat. Rumi, in one of his insights, says, uh, God, turn me into a well-baked loaf. So the image of being someone who's mature and useful, you know, and kind of processed and a mensch, a well-baked loaf. But it means you get punched. You know? Yeah, that's right. We get punched. Sabbath day. 
How do we understand God? We understand God through our own experience. Lots of us have ideas about God. I don't know of any bad old idea about God that died just because it was a bad old idea. Oh, it's bad. I'm sure it'll die. Bad old ideas have a way of holding on. And sometimes if your head is full of bad old ideas, you've got to actively recruit good new ideas and let them fight it out. Um, we need sometimes some real information that's useful and helpful. Um, the rule of thumb for understanding God that I think is pretty valid for most of us is we understand God through our own experiences. This is why at meetings we don't need to talk theology, we need to talk about our experiences. People will identify on experiences. And then you can draw some conclusions from that. For many, many, many of us, the first hint of a the first hint of spirituality that's not toxic is recovery. You see, sick people start to get well. And that gives you an idea of God. God takes sick, sick people and gets them well. This frequently takes a long time. My sponsor, who needs meetings very badly, and we're watching closely, says uh, the only person sicker than a newcomer at that newcomer's first meeting is that newcomer's version of the higher power. Because we come in with a lot of distortions. The God who is enraged, a lot of us have that. The God who is far away, a lot of us have that. That's my personal favorite. Um, the shrinks tell us, and I think they're right, that our first experience with higher power is mom and dad. So if you have an awful lot of difficulty with higher power stuff, the question I would ask, is how well did you get along with mom and dad? If you are terrified of eternal damnation and smell fire and brimstone, I think I'd ask if there was a lot of screaming at home when you were a kid. You know? Was one of your parents a bully? <laughs> um, was one of your parents uh, physically violent? Just fundamental question. Um, my dad was this wonderful man who everybody liked and he was very involved in a lot of stuff and he would come home and have a couple of drinks and pass out. So, my idea of God, God's wonderful and, and very effective for you. <laughs> However, has no time for me. And I just figured that was true forever. I relate a lot to Franz Kafka, who was not an optimist, and I would not recommend reading him unless you've got about five years in the program. Um, he was a little moody, um, but, but it says true things. You know. uh, Kafka, in one of his essays, writes, There is infinite hope, but not for us. Okay. I can't tell you how I identify with that. See, I know it's going to work out for you, but I'm doomed. You know, and no matter how hard I try, I'm doomed. 
part of my recovery, God as I understand God, I had to change my understanding of God. Because my little boy's understanding of God was not going to keep me sober. And I had to realize that God wasn't far off. God was involved in my life. How do I know this? I'm not loaded at the moment. This is what opened the door. Um, now, there's lots of stories about God. I mean, I, I like the ones of mustard seed and yeast and field and seed. I like all that stuff. That helps me a lot. Um, one of the oldest, oldest, oldest stories is the business of God creating in uh, six days, you know, all, all kinds of things. And on the seventh day, God rests, however that story goes. It's early Genesis. The way some of the rabbis dealt with that story, because they're trying to understand. They're trying to take a look at where does God start and we end and where do we start and God ends and what's the mixture and is God present or is God far away. Or uh, There's a lot of conversation on this, you know. Some of the founding fathers of the United States, like Mr. Jefferson and Mr. Madison, they were people who believed that they were deists. God started everything, the universe, as this great big clock and then went away. So everything works perfectly like Isaac Newton's universe. And this is what they believed in, you know. God was not personally involved. God was the great clockmaker in the sky. Well, that helps a lot of people. doesn't help me. Um, Aristotle described God as a God is thought thinking itself. Doesn't do much for me either. Um, I have some real difficulty with the way that Jesus is presented by some. Makes the skin crawl off my bones. Um, really does. I mean, I just go, oh, no, you don't mean that. I just, I'm so horrified. Um, I get to choose the God of my understanding. I need to hear other people talk about how they understand. But that doesn't mean I'm going to agree with these folks. And I have to go with what's consistent with my experience. I'm glad to say it's also in my tradition, so I'm, I don't feel schizophrenic there. But looking at God creating. Ignatius Loyola, in the mid-1500s, will have a keen vision. It, it's like he channeled for a little bit. If you think that channeling started with Ram Thaw, uh, it's been going on for a long, long time. Uh, most of it fraudulent. Um, but every so often there are these true voices that come through. And Loyola has this vision of God and Jesus and connection and what he emerges from that with this conviction. The God we worship, the, the God we worship is still at work. That's number one as, as he begins his entry into the world of spirituality and service. The God who created is still creating. Things didn't stop on the sixth day, and now we're waiting for the end. God is still very much at work here, and now creation's ongoing. There's always new things emerging, and the old is passing away, but new things, it's like yeast. Teilhard de Chardin, whom I like a lot, Chardin, C-H-A-R-D-I-N, will look at everything we see, and Chardin will say, if you look at everything we see, you can conclude that there is nothing new under the sun. Nothing has ever changed. It's always been this way. That's one whole, and there are a lot of people who think like that. Everything's static, fossilized, nothing changes. We're just waiting for the end. 
Or, Chardin said, you could look at all of this as we are at the crest, the very, very crest, the edge of this wave that is moving forward. Developing, evolving, changing. That's the one I choose to believe in. We're yeast. It's mustard seed. It's growing. The sixth day, it's still the sixth day. There's a lot going on. And, Loyola will say, we are called to labor with the God who labors. We are called to participate in the work of building the earth. How will recovery ever get to the prisons? One of us takes it there. Usually someone with no social skills or friends. And everyone else thinks they're weird. And they go in and people get well. It's amazing who gets used. It, Ignatius Loyola prayed that as you, as you saw God at work, or as, as the eyes of faith for Loyola were, were looking around to notice not just God present, but God at work, and the two always go together for him. To pray for the willingness to participate to some degree with God's work. And if you don't have the willingness to participate, pray for the willingness for the willingness. Which is a notion that is picked up very much in the program. If you don't want to get well, okay. Are you willing to be willing to get well? Are you willing to be willing to be willing to get well? Are, is the door open at all? And you'll meet people who will tell you, it's all or nothing, black or white, 100% or zero. And I would like to suggest that that's alcoholism talking. The real lived experience of women and men is lots of things start small. Mustard seed, yeast. And that if a door is just open the smallest amount, it's open. And it can be opened further. In fact, some of us can't stand the thought of an open door at all. We're too terrified or too angry. But we're willing to let the door be unlocked. Sometimes. And what's startling is if in our heart and our head we're willing, just barely, barely willing to have the door unlocked sometimes, occasionally. God can work. And little things become great big things. We are on the edge of a wave, of a crest of change. We are yeast in the dough. And other people are yeast for us. And we are mustard seed for some. And others have been mustard seed for us. For your spiritual practice this afternoon, what I'd like you to do, unless you want to take a nap again, which I would approve of, because I always approve of naps. But you might want to take a few moments and make a list of the women and men in your life who have been mustard seed and yeast to you. People who have made a significant difference. Most of them don't know. It may be someone out of meeting. It might be a relative who may be dead for years now. It might be an old teacher. 
I was I was having lunch with um, Bernie Bush today, and and I just remembered. 25 years ago, I was in tremendous trouble emotionally and spiritually, and I needed to talk to someone very, very badly, and there was a Jesuit in Los Angeles that spent the afternoon with me, and we had conversation, and he spent the next couple of days walking me through a real crisis, capital C. I've never thanked him. And as uh, what I realized as I was, I, have, I just haven't thought about this in 25 years. Um, one of the things I need to do as a way of making amends is to thank him. Write him a letter, just a real simple one, saying thank you for that summer day when you spent the time to listen to me as I was in crisis. He was mustard seed for me. He listened. He let me walk through it. And he showed understanding and compassion. That's a great gift. So, who in your life has been mustard seed and yeast? This can go on to a gratitude list, you know. And then you might know of others that you have been mustard seed and yeast for, although probably you don't. Because one of the things about mustard seed and yeast is it's anonymous. It's anonymous. And the people you think you're having... A big influence on, don't even know you're alive. 